can spit at you from here. What are you doing with your face? That's free speech. Nerd, you're wrong. Oh! That is some bad philosophy. Come on. Bad Philosophy, episode 16, recorded on December 18th, 2008. Ikama Kindle. Welcome then, one to Bad Philosophy. Well, we're back on Skype, and uh, this time it's just just two, just two of us. Unfortunately, Matt Leichler was not able to make it on the show today uh, due to a stock market conference that he is attending with his dad, and um, so it's just down to me and Kevin. Yeah. We weren't able to get anyone else on on such short notice, <laughs> and uh, apparently Skype usage is still uh, very low in the overall community, so unfortunately the people who we might have gotten on can't because they have no idea how to use Skype. Shame on them. But anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, it's going to be a pretty disjointed show today. We've got a lot of topics to talk about, but uh, first and foremost, wanted to touch on the subject that we covered last week, which was the shutdown of the Texas Tech radio station, KTXT. Uh, there haven't been too many developments in this past week, but I did want to update you all on a few different things. Since our episode uh, came out, there have been multiple uh, fundraisers done for the radio station and um, sort of gatherings of the music community in Lubbock to show support for the radio station. Um, something Benjamin Brown uh, mentioned near the end in the post-show, uh, there was a concert at uh, Jake's uh, bar and uh, music venue in Lubbock, and uh, a lot of people showed up, a lot of good songs. Um, it was sort of a, a gathering of everyone concerned about the issue. Um, aside from the, the community gatherings and such, uh, there have been some official meetings of the Texas Tech administration regarding the radio station. Um, one, there was a Board of Regents meeting where a lot of supporters of KTXT gave some talking points uh, when they were allowed to. Um, however, the administration has not decided exactly what the fate of KTXT will be, other than what has been announced so far. They have only uh, clarified and expanded on the points they made before. And uh, in all honesty, at this point, it seems like they have done a, a very poor job of defending their reasons for uh, shutting down the station. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring uh, just one thing to light that, honest, quite honestly, when I read it, it made my blood boil. Uh, and it showed kind of the, the precedent that the administration set far in advance of, of actually shutting down the station. Um, this story comes from uh, Josh Justice. Um, he was a station manager from June 2005 to May 2006 for KTXT, and uh, he answered directly to the, to the still director of student media, Susan Peterson. This is a firsthand account of uh, basically when he met with the, his, his bosses, those in charge of managing the, the KTXT station and the funds uh, allocated therefor. Uh, Josh recalls that he was seeking to alleviate some of the station's operating costs. He decided to propose a pledge slash fund drive, uh, much like those of public radio stations. Um, one such drive had occurred a few years before, but for reasons unknown to him, and uh, had not been repeated. As far as he knew, it was a success. So uh, in a weekly meeting, he went to propose this to the administration board and was quickly denied. Um, the logic behind the denial was uh, superficial, he said. It had nothing to do with mismanagement, uh, lack of donations or interest, or that the money was wasted on booze or Pop-Tarts. <laughs> he said none of those things happened. Then the, the administration explained that this would be a, a decrease, a reason to decrease KTXT's share of the student money if they were going to be getting it from the fundraiser. Um, so the basically like if KTXT is going to raise its own money, perhaps we should just give them less. Which is something that does happen. Right. Um, but is it goes against the idea that, that he was trying to do, which is generate additional revenue. Definitely. Um, he said he countered with uh, the sincere, uh, maybe naive notion that we just wanted to earn our keep. And uh, how could the administration see this and find such an action punishable? Uh, he knew that the money we raised would not be enough to operate the station or may even pay the staff, but it certainly couldn't hurt. He said that besides mocking what the, the administration deemed to, would be a pitiable amount of raised funds. 
they told him something that he's never forgotten. He said this room full of all-female student media staff told him not to worry about raising money for the station and instead to relax and to be a kept woman. And he said they chuckled after they made this comment, and it, it sort of it sort of took him aback um, because <laughs> it essentially translates to we want you to be our bitch. I, I will actually disagree with that phraseology. What do you think it means, Kevin? Well, no, I know what, what that sort of thing means in general. And it's not quite bitch, but it's it's a kept woman is generally a more more akin to a trophy wife in that you're there to look good and you have all your needs taken care of. An example of a kept woman would be Hugh Hefner's girlfriends. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the image that left my mind too. Is this, this sort of the the Stepford wife? <laughs> mm, that's that's a better example. And, and it and it still appalled me because you, them using this analogy was basically saying that. The, the radio stations shouldn't expect to have any dignity and that they afforded it absolutely no dignity and that it couldn't it couldn't even be allowed to create its own sense of dignity of a fundraiser for itself. That yeah. basically its its whole reason of existing was dependent on them, just their grace of keeping it around. Yes, uh, that is seem to seem to be the case. And this seems to be the attitude that uh, Susan Peterson still holds. In all of the interviews that I've seen with her, um, she they're really playing down the whole situation as if it is really not that important, that the station was never uh, significant to begin with, so why should we care that it's gone? Uh, hmm. and, and, of course, <laughs> the former station manager and uh, staff have argued extensively to show that the station was significant, it was contributing to the Lubbock uh, music community, that it was acting as, as a voice for the, for the students, and that it was acting as a, a way to train the next generation of uh, radio broadcasters, mm -hmm. which uh, are still very necessary um, attributes. Um, and, and it made more sense to me after I saw this that uh, this wasn't a sudden decision by the administration. It was something that they'd been wanting to do for a very long time, and I guess... <laughs> to use a metaphor, finally worked up the balls uh -huh. to do uh -huh. for sure and and for good. Um, but this this sort of reverse bigotry, I just I really don't understand it. This idea of an all female staff uh, having something against the the support of of music of independent music in the Lubbock community. It just seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by doing this. I just want to point out that I I don't think that the the focus here should be on you know the the makeup of of the staff or the actual phraseology. You can just as easily say "be a kept man." That's a phrase I've actually heard "kept man" before. I heard "kept woman" um, because I aspire to be a kept man someday. Um, no, but you know it's <laughs> it's a life. There there are certain perks, but um, the thing I think that needs to be focused on is is the attitude of student media as a body against or towards the radio station, um, which is, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an entirely negative thing. It was actually got some really positive aspects in that, you know, they were, the student media said, don't worry, tech will take care of the radio station. That's sort of the, the upside of being a kept woman, kept man, kept radio station, um, which it obviously did not do. Um, I, th I think something to be read a little bit deeper into this is that, you know, this don't worry about fundraising and stuff because, you know, maybe you don't need to worry about raising funds because you won't have anything to raise them for before too long. Because this, this was back, this was, you know, three years ago. So other than, other than this, though, I haven't seen much news regarding the KTXD situation. We've gotten uh, a story in the Associated Press through the Houston Chronicle. Um, so it has gone national, if you will. I don't think any major news organizations have covered it yet, uh, as far as television news broadcasting, and they're unlikely to. It, it's it's a relatively small thing in retrospect, I guess. I, I did. I'll, I'll, I do want to uh, convey though a, a little personal story that made me a little bit excited last week, but didn't actually <laughs> turn out to pan out. Uh, just for the heck of it. I emailed Leo Laporte. Uh, some of you might remember him from Twit, uh, This Week in Tech, uh, pretty significant tech podcast. It's been around for a long time. Um, 
So I emailed him, and, and I was expecting a reply. I mean, he, he never responds to email. He never he always complains about how he never even gets to read all of his email. But lo and behold, I did get a response from Leo uh, to my asking him to mention the KTXT story on Twit. And he said, in a one-line response, that's terrible and short-sighted. I definitely will, exclamation point. So, you know, I flipped out. Of course, Matt flipped out with both big <laughs> Twit fans because we're thinking, oh, hey, cool. You know, Leo Laporte is going to mention us on This Week in Tech. Turns out he forgot. Um, <laughs> they recorded Twit this past weekend and uh, ended up talking about more interesting things. But still, it, it was it was sort of disheartening for me to hear him kind of verbally promise that he was going to do this and then uh, forget about it. Um, I did catch him in a in a chat room for a concert with Callie Lewis and some other local San Francisco web celebs, and I asked him, uh, did you mention the KTXT story? And he said, uh, no, I forgot. I'm sorry. And then he said that he's going to mention it on the next tweet, but I have less reason to believe that now. <laughs> mm. um, but it it's, sort of gives you an idea. I mean, this, this is – he found an interest in the story. Mm. I mean, he took an interest in our case and uh, – at least from a cursory glance, thought, you know, really this is this is not good. This isn't something that uh, should continue. Um, what I'm hoping, though, is that we do keep getting escalating uh, coverage on the situation because that's the only way that we're going to end up saving it is if this just blows far out of proportion beyond what they uh, expected to manage. Two things I want to add. Um, one, I was, I was watching uh, Leo Laporte's live broadcast of... of he was recording a couple episodes of Tech Guy uh, and two episodes of Twit back-to-back-to-back. Uh, to back to back. And I was watching them uh, as it was recording, and someone was actually on uh, that website on the on the chat room for about 20, 30 minutes while he was recording uh, talking about the KTXT story. Um, I, Leo was busy recording a podcast at the time, so he wasn't reading the chat logs. Um, but I did think it was interesting that, that someone was, was there and talking about it, and I... They didn't identify themselves, but they, you know, posted some links and thoughts. For the most part, nobody really paid attention to them, which is understandable because they were busy talking about whatever Leo was talking about. Um, so, I mean, we're people. People are out there and they're trying to get get themselves known, get this story heard, which is definitely something worthwhile. I forgot the second thing I was going to say, so we'll just pretend it's still very much a developing situation. I mean, we're we're at the point now where we're kind of we've done the initial gathering of supporters. And we're trying to get exposure, and we're hoping somehow that we get uh, we get help from within the administration with some sympathizers that will help take this to the next level and, and keep the situation and keep the station going. Um, but for now, we're just going to have to see. Second thing I thought of was that um, as much as we feel like we're just getting started, we're just getting riled up. I'm afraid there's probably going to be a bit of a time limit on this thing because the farther and farther away we get from from the actual event taking place, the less likely I think Texas Tech or anybody will be willing to do something about it, um, which is something unfortunate, but something we should be kept on our minds if, if we're you know really pushing this to keep doing so and not not slack ever. Right. We do have to keep the energy going through the holiday season, which is hard. Um, I have to give it to the administration or whoever planned out exactly how this deal was going to go down. They did a fantastic job of timing it for a period where student support would be most likely to lose steam. Uh, you don't have students all together in one place physically. Um, you have this, this break. You have other things going on, other concerns, the holiday season, New Year's, um, preparations for the new semester. And that's the thing is we're just going to have to keep the energy high until January, until classes reconvene in order for anything to happen. And I think there's a great risk that we will lose the, this energy and this momentum that we have simply because we're not all together. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's the most sadistic thing I've ever seen, and I just I hate it. And my gut twists when I think about it, but it's the reality, and we're going to have to fight it. Got to do what you can. So, but for any of those of y'all who really don't care about this whatsoever, we do have other things we're going to talk about on this podcast, <laughs> mm-hmm. on this particular episode. Kevin, why don't you go ahead and uh, spit it out there? What's what's uh, on your mind? About, I don't think it was quite a year ago, but beginning of the summer, if not a little beforehand, my father purchased an Amazon Kindle, uh, which is the big new e-reader um, going up against Sony. And actually, I from what I've 
can tell, beating Sony backwards and sideways uh, when it comes to e-readers. Uh, just because, I mean, among other things, Amazon has the system in place to get e-books sold. Um, but it's it's I've I've had a lot of access to one because my father, and it's a really it's a good device. Um, but despite being an advertisement for the Kindle, which this is not, um, I've been I've been looking at some various shortcomings or looking for shortcomings because I'm a bit of a negative Nancy sometimes. Um, the biggest one that you'll probably read about is that uh, is the Amazon DRM that comes on it um, when you buy ebooks from people or from Amazon. Um, they're in it, you can't get PDF, and the Amazon formats are DRM, so you can't share them with people. Um, Right. It is worth it is worth pointing out though that as my father did when I I brought up this topic you know DRM bad, um, which is something I I feel strongly about. Um, he goes yeah but it doesn't affect me because his reading he's reading his books, and the minimal DRM that is on there hasn't impacted his experience with it at all, which will be the case with a lot of consumers out there. So you know keep fighting the good fight on the DRM. Another thing I found about it that that just occurred to me you know a week ago or less was that I'm a comic book nerd. Well, okay, that didn't occur to me. <laughs> we all knew that. <laughs> yeah, big surprise. I own all of Preacher and Watchmen and countless others. Um, I actually think comic book nerd is a bit of an understatement. I think you might be a comic book junkie. Well, for what it's worth, I inherited it from my father as well, because I'm sitting in my bedroom here where he's got 1, 2, 4, 8, 12, 16 rather large boxes of his comic book collection from in his youth. But um, the Kindle is a black-and-white e-paper screen, and I love e-paper. I think it is fantastic. Uh, go look up the specs on it. You can learn the technical details of it. But basically, it looks and feels like paper. It looks like you're reading a page and not a screen, um, which is, like, that's what the e-book th scene has needed to push it forward, and it's there. Um, but the problem with the e-paper right now is that it's only in black and white at a relatively limited resolution, and my comic books are not. Right. So you see, you foresee a problem transferring the comic book medium over to the e-book medium. That you don't, you don't think that uh, e-book readers like the Kindle will be able to adequately reproduce comic books. I don't think they can yet, and that's and that's what I wanted to look at it was kind of the future of comics and and. I mean, because um, if you if you go read anything by uh, Scott McCloud, which I highly recommend if you want to get a good history of comics or possible theorizations on the future of comics, look at his books, Understanding Comics and Reinventing Comics, respectively. But he looks at, at comics as they've existed throughout time, and, as, and up until really the invention of the computer, comic books were, I mean, graphic novels, comics of any sort... Um, juxtapositions of words and pictures had not changed at all. And the internet and, and the computer screen alone was a huge revolution in that regards. And so with with the e-readers to do anything worthwhile with, with comics, which are a relatively small you know, uh, portion of, of the reading population, but still substantial. I mean, the comic book industry makes a lot of money. Dark Knight, Iron Man, See Above which aren't comic books, but comic book sales increased dramatically when those movies did extremely well. Um, and so we need to see an increase in e-reader capabilities and e-paper capabilities before we will have achieved the dominance that some people claim the Kindle has. People like, apparently, Oprah, uh, which Stephen mentioned to me a little earlier, was that Oprah spent an episode talking about how she loves her Kindle, and I don't blame her. But I doubt Oprah reads a lot of comics. No, I don't think she does. Uh, but at least she was responsible for getting it out there in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, as a result of Oprah's uh, little revelation, Kindles are almost impossible to find. Um, and they're still, I think, what, two, three hundred dollars? Uh three fifty actually. Three fifty right now. Uh they started they started at four hundred. iPod was the same when it came out. I mean you look at first generation iPods when they came out, they were three hundred dollars. Yeah, and I think I still think though you're only going to get early adopters right now. And for it to really, I think in addition to um, needing to have the ability to do comics, I think the price point is going to have to come down. A, and I think B, they're going to have to do a better design. I mean, the Kindle, for for all of its elegance, I think is an ugly <laughs> little device. I think it looks like clunky. something that dropped out of 1998 
yeah, it's it's the beige box all over again. Um, it really looks about 10 years old in, in design. Um, they need to come up with something slick. The Sony eBook Reader is much slicker in design, um, though it is not as good on battery life or support. Um, the Kindle does have the ability to to download books over uh, Sprint Sprint's network for free. For free, yes. Delivery is delivery is free on that sort of stuff, which is really impressive. Uh, you can actually surf the web for free with their experimental browser. Yeah, that's also not too great. <laughs> yeah, my dad uses it for Twitter mostly. Apparently, he he updates Twitter with his Kindle, which is a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. I mean, that's conversions for you there. Mm -hmm. But I would say the Kindle is a very good 1.0 device. It's a very good initial uh, offering. Mm -hmm. But I would really recommend holding off on it. I mean, for any of y'all who are, are thinking of getting one, I'd say don't do it right now. Wait for the Kindle 2. Wait for the, the next Coming evolution. Coming in February. Wait for them to have. Not not announced, but there's a there was, no there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that says uh, the Kindle will, 2 will be coming out in about February or March. Um, for example, right now, if you if you try to purchase a Kindle on Amazon, you get put on a wait list that says you will receive a Kindle in about 13 weeks. Um, Amazon has stopped selling them, stopped shipping them, um, which you would think would be a really bad idea to do right before Christmas, um, because yes. because it would be a huge seller. Everybody wants a Kindle for Christmas, but what they're actually doing is they're creating. They're they're fixing the problem because if if they were still selling them, which they have the capability to do, and still shipping them, they they could ship out a bunch of them before Christmas, um, be, have big Christmas gifts, and then um, once they do release it here in February or so, it would be after the point of uh, the 30-day return policy that Amazon has, and so people would get really upset that I just purchased this. And so really, they're, they're kind of clearing the market. But still, I mean, is it really worth this limbo between release cycles? I mean, I, it's, it's quite, I mean, Apple has managed to, to keep it down to about a couple of weeks, you know, stopping selling the previous model when a new one's going to come out. I mean, this is, this is almost, what, three months of yeah. just suspending uh, sales entirely? Well, we're, we're going to see how all that goes. They're, they're potentially losing a lot of money, um, but what they can do is, because you can still purchase a Kindle, you can still buy one and put your money towards it. Now, what that means is when the new ones ship in February, the Kindle 2.0, you will automatically be upgraded to the Kindle 2.0, thus, make, make, thus, thus creating a lot of goodwill for Amazon in that, um, you know, you get the next best thing as soon as it was available. True. You know, this happened to me actually about five years ago with uh, my Logitech wireless controllers. I, I bought a couple uh, that were the, the best at the time mm -hmm. for the original Xbox. Uh, I'd always been a fan of Logitech stuff, and um, they worked really well for about a month or two. And then uh, I had started to have some problems with the analog sticks on them. So, mm -hmm. you know, I called up Logitech support, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a problem we've been having with a lot of them. And uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, send you all some new ones. So, um, you know, I wait. They gave me a support request. Two weeks go by and nothing happens. Hmm. Uh, call them back. Turns out, well, they've been having a heck of a lot of problems with this device and decided to recall it um, oh, wow. and redesign the controller. So what ended up happening is um, in order to kind of keep me sated in the meantime, Logitech mm -hmm. sent me two wired controllers for free. Um, and once the new model started shipping, sent me two of their brand-new model of, of wireless controller, and they were smaller and uh, more responsive and, and really excellent controllers. Wow. Um, but it, it really did create this kind of this, this uh, feeling of uh, satisfaction. Like, I really had, um, I really meant something to the company for them mm -hmm. to do this. Um, now, granted, that was for about a $30 product <laughs> versus yeah. a $350 product, and it's very possible that the Kindle 2 will be about $100 cheaper. Uh, there's there's a good chance of a price drop. Yeah. Um, so you know what what happens then when these people pay three hundred fifty dollars up front and then get the new one? Did they get a rebate or? I bet they would. Or maybe like a, a credit to the store. <laughs> That's possible too. I mean, that'll buy you a lot of books. Considering that new, you know, what are considered hardcover books we usually go for thirty bucks. In paper, cost about ten on the Kindle store. Um, so that mm. buys a lot of books. Um, 
one thing that, that this has done, though, is is dramatically increased the uh, the price of Kindles on the secondary market. Uh, Kindles are going for as much as six hundred dollars on places like eBay, um, with people who are trying to get them by Christmas. Um, and I, I being the entrepreneur entrepreneur that I am, uh, pushed my father to um, to sell his because I'm like, okay, the new one's coming out in you know three months. You've lived without you've lived you know with paper books before. Uh, you could probably do it again. Uh, and he, and and the thing is, he likes it so much, he doesn't think he could do that. Oh my goodness, he doesn't think he could go without it just in Pittsburgh. Yeah, that is that is how much. And mind you, he he travels a lot. Um, he's actually in Green Bay right now. Uh, hi, Dad. Yeah, sorry, it's cold. Um, he travels a lot, and he says it is it is so much better because as soon as he finishes a book, he can get a new one immediately. He doesn't have to go to a bookstore. Mm. He can sit in his hotel room, finish a book, and start reading another one within three minutes. Um, and that's if he wants to get a brand new one. If he's got another one on his thing already, which he often does, he can start reading it immediately. Um, and the fact he's got, I think he's mm. got 30-something books on there, and he's not even gone into his uh, SD card, because they've got an SD slot, because what doesn't nowadays, um, without going onto his SD card on there. That's just the internal memory thing he said can hold about, I want to say, 80 books or so. That 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 is something that you know to be able to carry eighty books in the space of one is impressive. It's less than one. I mean, it, it's, it's oh, a, definitely, yeah. It's I mean, a it's fairly small, thin. It's about the size of a DVD case. Yeah. Um, and that's it's. I don't know. I I, I haven't made the uh, I haven't made the leap yet, uh, and I I'm unlikely to. I've been a huge fan of audiobooks, mm. and I've been consuming books on a level, on an unprecedented level recently. Um, I have. I have gone through probably five or six novels over the, the last uh, two months, mm-hmm. um, simply in my downtime, uh, simply you know listening when I'm making lunch or yeah. when I'm driving to and from uh, work or walking to class, and it's it's been fantastic. It's more reading than I've gotten done in the last three years, um, simply That's because I, I don't have many times where I can just sit down and read. I'm mm-hmm. always doing something else. So... For, for me, I think audiobooks are the future, and I'm. It would take a lot of convincing for me to get a Kindle. Um, I, I don't know. I just I that's, don't that's really see myself using that sort of. A, you know, because I'm not a fan of the the traditional book medium either. I think it's an inefficient way to get information. I'm a relatively slow reader. I've tried to learn how to speed read, but it just doesn't work for me. I, I retain what I hear, and. Uh, I process it a lot better. Um, I don't think, you know, reading, it's, it's much easier for me to just kind of zone out and, uh, <laughs> you know, two pages later realize that I don't remember what I just read. Um, whereas with audiobooks, I, I'm really paying attention, especially if it's a, a good reader. Uh, and they have some excellent narrators on audio. That's really interesting because I'm almost the exact opposite of that. The only time I can I can truly get into an audiobook is if I sit down and listen to it for at least an hour at a time. Um, I can't just turn on a book and jump back in and be exactly where I was. Uh, there's something about about the the visual page um, and and being able to to keep pace, to keep in the story, um, and to come in and out a lot easier. Like I listen to audiobooks uh, usually by Cory Doctorow when I'm on uh, the road, like from Grapevine to Lubbock or back. Um, I listen to them in those situations because I have this, you know five and a half to six hour drive dedicated to listening to the audiobook. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all about the Kindle. The, the other, the downside of the Kindle that I have is, uh, a, I've got a lot of books I already own that I want to finish reading if I haven't read them already. Um, and B I'm, I'm a very visual person. Again, that's why I like looking at books as opposed to listening to them. And I love big bookshelves full of books. <laughs> you like the physical presence. Knowledge. Yeah, and it's it's similar to my DVD collection, um, which I think you've seen, which is substantial, and is is very visual. You can look at it and see all the DVDs I own, which is you know close to 200, I'm afraid. Um, a little frightening, but and you know I could buy one of those big boxes to hold all my DVDs in, without their cases or anything, but I like that visual impact of it, and the Kindle will be getting rid of that in the near future um, if it catches on because I won't be able to have a big visual image of books. But now it would be awesome, and I don't know how 
they would go about doing this and making good business and, you know, getting me to pay for it, um, would be have like a big e-paper and color poster of all the books I own that I could hang on a wall or something <laughs> that looks like a book. Would that really be a significant though? I, I don't it know. It wouldn't be as significant, way, but I mean, it would be it's, something. It's a fabrication. It would be yeah, something. But it'd be good representation. Yeah. I've got a really, really big, heavy bookshelf that I put together with my own two hands from something I bought at Walmart, and it is full of books. And that's only a small, you know, only a portion of the books I own. I'm sitting in my room here, and all of my books are actually gone because it's, my bedroom has become my mother's scrapbooking room. But there used to be tons of books in here, and there's still quite a few. Um, and... There's there's some sort of there's a gravitas about having books, and I've always wanted to to grow up and have a big old mansion with a library in it, you know, a big room full of books yeah. that just exist. Um, and it's a different world, but the Kindle could soon be the one. Like you, you have your big library, and it's it's a pedestal with a Kindle on it, and you poke at it, and it's just as useful, if not more so. I almost wonder if the gravitas will be translated, though. It's sort of a similar experience I have when I look at someone's music collection. Mm -hmm. um, if I go on, they open iTunes, and I see, you know, that little number at the bottom, say, 30,000 songs, um, or 50,000, or 108,000. I mean, you can, you just, you go, wow, you know, that's yeah. a lot of music. And, you, you know, you scroll through this, and you see. And that's, I mean, that's creates in me the same sort of, um, impressiveness as seeing a huge cd collection on a wall now granted um you know you don't you can't go up and touch everything and pull it mm -hmm. out and look at the music cover and look at the inset and all that but you still get the feeling of wow there's all this music here um and i think they can be the same way you know you can have you see somebody's audible library um and just you know the the sheer number of books they have in there yeah. or you see someone's um kindle library uh, you know, scrolling through it. Um, I, I think, I think we're sort of, um, we're training ourselves to recognize, uh, that grandeur in a different way. I think mm -hmm. the, the huge library, I think the huge CD collection, the huge record collection, I think that's the thing in the past. I think that's a, that's an old world, uh, approach to sizing up the amount of knowledge a person has, um, or the, the size of someone's collection. I think we're, we're learning different ways of appreciating the amount of knowledge that's out there or the amount of knowledge that a certain person has acquired. But I think it's, it's in a way kind of a false representation too, like mm -hmm. even falser than your you know, image of a bookshelf would be. Yeah. Many people just buy books to have them. And I know many folks who have a huge library in their house and I ask them, you know, how much of these have you read? And they say, well, maybe 10% of them, you know, it's just stuff sitting up there. Well, that's, that's bad form. Of course it is, but yeah. you still you get the impression though, and it becomes yeah. a false impression, and then you wonder, well, how much does this person actually? But you could have you could have that with a with a you know a huge iTunes library or you know Kindle list or whatever as well. Um, and I, I will agree yeah, that it, it, it probably will change, and I will deal with it, and I'll get used to it um, because I really I I think that ebooks are you know the way of the future. I'm I I the first ebook I actually read in its entirety was uh, Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. I've name-dropped him twice now on this show. I am such a, just a, yeah. Like, I love him, but I feel, like, <laughs> guilty for name-dropping him all the time. Hey, for good reason, you know, you, you don't don't feel bad about loving the guy. I don't. Uh, it's great stuff. But anyway, um, the first e-book I read in its entirety was Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. And I sat there for about 72 hours, not in a row, but, you know, over the course of three days. And I read the book in its entirety, all on my computer screen. Um, it's the first time I've done that for an entire book. I've read bits and pieces and snippets, and I've I've seen e-books, and I've downloaded them. I'm like, oh, I'll read that sometime. But um, that was the first book where I actually sat down and read. And the the experience is not different to me. I still have the memories of reading that book and the experiences that take place in that book just as much as if I had read it in a hard copy format. But I should point out, interesting. I'm an old crotchety man and I don't like change, so I want to keep my bookshelves. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. You know, I have to say, I've been seeing this whole, um, you know, e-books are the wave of the future, we're mm -hmm. going to have 
you know, paper's going to be gone, and it, and it always seems to be five years away. Yeah, I remember in the turn of the century, um, everybody was saying, yeah, you know, ebooks, e-paper, it's going to be the new big thing. Uh, you know, five years from now, you're going to be able to just, uh, you know, send in a little card and, and get one of these from the New York Times, and you know, they'll just they'll they'll practically be giving them away. You know, just like they <laughs> give away newspapers for. And uh, it's still not the case. I mean, technology has not evolved to the point where that sort of um, that sort of format is cheap and easily distributable. Um, I think it's moving that direction, but it's going a lot slower. Um, um, and it, I think it's happening with other media too, uh, virtual reality, um, certainly space travel. Mm-hmm. I, I just think we got this false impression with the the explosion of the internet and the multiple dot com bubbles that have now burst that yeah. technological is this you know every time we get sort of an upswing we think that it's just going to keep going um and we get this idea of you know like uh ray kurzweil singularity uh predictions yeah but i think technological advancement is much more punctuated i think we have um periods where we undergo rapid growth uh and then just kind of stagnate for a while um but that this you know it's overall it's it's a, an upward progression but it's certainly not a a sustained constant growth um, mm-hmm. it's very erratic and uh it's very dependent on other things it's definitely getting there and um, i think this i think ebooks ebooks are definitely an example of this i think the kindle is a great stride forward mm-hmm. but it's going to be a couple of years or or even more or even a decade before we really see it proliferating because it's going to coincide with like the downfall of the new york times uh, and the chicago tribune <laughs> you know these other major newspapers that are in dire uh, straits right now um, that either need to transition to new media or die um, because paper is is dying very slowly mm-hmm. and um, but we're still we're still not it's still not dying quite fast enough to transition to e-paper it's it's not dying as fast as some of us would like it i guess is, is one way of looking at it <laughs> Um, cause there are definitely people out there pushing for it. Amazon being one of those people, not that Amazon hasn't made a ton of money on books, hard copy books and still is. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those that, that the, the Amazon situation has, has put in a place, not just an e-reader cause we've had e-readers, you know, off and on for, for years now, as you say, but Amazon has the infrastructure behind it. Um, and I think, I think that's why mm-hmm. it's as substantial as it is. You know, I'm looking at the link you just yeah, sent. Yeah, I just I wanted to mention yeah, that because this frightens me. Yeah, what what Kevin basically sent is a is a pie chart um, comparing the uh, overall size of the 2008 bailout um, adjusted uh, amount adjusted for inflation with the combined um, a, a combined series of government uh, initiatives over the years, including the uh, Marshall Plan, Louisiana Purchase, the the Moonshot. The SNL crisis, which was what savings and loan, savings and loan crisis. Yeah, I think that was I think it was around the Great Depression, but don't quote me on that. Okay, the Korean War, the New Deal, the Iraq War, Vietnam, and the all-time budget of NASA. Now, all of these programs add up to approximately 3.9 trillion dollars, and the 2008 bailout comes out to 4.6 trillion. Uh huh. Now this this is all I don't know how they adjust this for inflation. It's certainly not based on our current dollar value, but possibly for uh, based on some initial one. I'd like to see more of what's behind this, but it, it just it really puts it in perspective yeah. of uh, just the the sheer amount of money that we're throwing away, in my opinion, uh-huh. <laughs> on this this frivolous attempt to to sustain our unsustainable economy. Yeah, and I don't want to go on a I hate the government rant, but this makes me angry. Yeah, go go ahead. What what uh, what makes you angriest about this? <laughs> uh, this is my money. Um, that's that's what makes me the angriest about this. Is this is is unlike like things like you know the Marshall Plan, the New Deal, uh, maybe not the Marshall Plan, things like that that we've we've seen in the past where the government has has rushed into action to fix an economic crisis. Um, New Deal being a good example, um, because a lot of people draw parallels between now and the Great Depression, um, calling this the second Great Depression, which there's certainly evidence that we could get there um, in the near future. Gas is less than a, is getting close to a dollar per gallon, um, which is frightening and awesome at the same time. But um, we see that happening, and um, the New Deal didn't work. Um, if you actually go look at the economics of the situation that happened right then, um, and the things that that were going on, the New Deal actually made things worse. What made us 
win the Great Depression was actually the fact that we got into a world war. Um, and we're already at war, and it's not helping either. And the government is just, is as you say, throwing away so much money in an attempt to to patch up something that is not working um, without looking at right. the, the deeper the problems. The of the situation is, is solving a debt crisis by creating more debt. Uh-huh. I mean, I just, I find that so... So incredibly funny, but but troubling at the same time. <laughs> it's um, it's that, that, ironic that actually, in the darkest possible way. They actually rational think that this is a solution. Yes, um, and I, I sometimes look at Ben Bernanke's face when I see him on the news headlines and mm-hmm. on the TV, and I just I see behind those eyes this like it looks like he wants to tell us that he knows that what he's doing is is hurting America, that that this is the worst thing that could possibly be. Yeah, but someone is keeping his tongue tied. Like I, I, I really believe that he wants to do the right thing, but can't. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's but I, I, you know, it really is frightening. Yeah, I've done I've done some reading on uh, Austrian economics recently. I, mm-hmm. I I got kind of urged to, to look it up on Wikipedia and really read what it was. Yeah. And I really I encourage any of y'all to read up on Austrian economics. It's it's a different approach uh, entirely to uh, looking at how the, the market cycle works, how credit is created and, and uh, fulfilled and destroyed and such. And it's the economic policy of Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he borrows essentially everything from Austrian economics. I, I now see that you know his features were almost word for word those of um, many of the, the prominent Austrian economists, um, Moses, um, uh, none of the other names are leaping to mind at the moment, but... Um, and it's really it makes me think long and hard about this um, that we really haven't realized that the fundamentals of our economy, unlike what John McCain said, are about the weakest thing that we have. That the fundamentals of our economic structure are exactly what are what gets us into these problems in the first place. Um, that the, the Great Depression, that the the crash of the 1980s, that the, the internet.com bubble bursting and the finally the the most recent credit crunch uh that all of these are symptoms of a of a volatile um economic structure that mm-hmm. will just keep getting worse i mean what we're seeing right now is just this this undulating uh market this this extreme fluctuation and um that's really what's what is the most damaging is the fact that we go through these these cycles of, of rapid growth and then, you know, horrible crash once the bubble bursts. You know, we create all of this this credit out of thin air that allows companies to, to draw huge loans Make for money. large construction projects, yeah, for, for advancements in technology, for all these things. And then it all comes tumbling down once the revenue doesn't match up with the yeah. initial investment. And that's how we have the this, you know, dot-com burst. That's how we have the this credit bubble. Uh, the housing market, uh, it, it's, and it makes me really sad that we don't, we're not trying to, to reimagine a different way of doing things. We say, well, you know, this is just, this is just how it has to be. And, we just got to do it more. Do it more. Do it faster. More. Do it more. Just, just keep throwing money at it. it it'll eventually work. Yeah. You know? it's, it's bound to its money. And, and what, what I'm afraid will happen is, and, it, and almost, you know, part of me is almost wishing that it, it won't happen this time, but what usually happens is we get to a point where you know some event restabilizes the market, but artificially so. Yeah. It restabilizes us for a short period of time, and then we we eventually fall into the exact same scenario over and over again. Um, and you know we just do this, this roller coaster ride up and down and up and down. You know, stop the train. I want to get off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to I want to imagine the way that we do the economy. And I I will admit, economics is not my strong point. But just looking at the fundamentals of things, I think taking a step back is the greatest thing that we could do in this situation. I think too many people are just entrenched in the only system that they know and are not willing to think that maybe there are different ways of doing this, that maybe we should try some different ways of doing this. Um, I just think everyone's too scared to, to act and take, to, to take big actions um, other than just spending big money that mm-hmm. doesn't even exist. <laughs> this, this kind of reminds me, talk of, of Austri- Austrian economics and stuff, reminded me of something, um, and I'm looking at something 
in a different way. Um, back when, when Ron Paul was still running for governor or president, excuse me, um, I'd love to have Ron Paul as a governor of Texas, though. That would, oh, um, oh anyway. Yeah, that... Oh, sorry, I just I just had to pause and just kind of just dream for a moment. Um, anyway, uh, when he's running for president, um, I I I mentioned to someone that I think I said you know what? I like Ron Paul. I think he's got a lot of good ideas. I agree with him on a lot of stuff. And this this woman said to me, and I'm, I don't remember who it was, so I'm not I can't even name name if I wanted to. Said to me in this in this shocked, this horrified voice is, you know, he wants to go back to the gold standard. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then and then I, my my response was yes. Where's the problem? So, <laughs> and and that, but that's yeah. Most people are like, oh, gold. You know, oh, it's just it's, how we it's, look it's gold at I mean, economics now. Gold is, is you know, money actually being worth something because it has value, not because we say it does. Well, and see, the problem the problem is not value though. I mean, I don't think I don't think gold has any more intrinsic value than than paper money. Okay, but, but so, the fact oh, so much gold it. is. It's scarcity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't just create gold out of thin air, at least not economically. You can do it. <laughs> you can create it out of other elements, but it takes a lot more power to do so than the benefit that you get back. And so the, the thing with gold is that it it curbs inflation because mm-hmm. you can't just create more. You have to discover more. You have to, to mine more. And yeah. you, you essentially have to work with what you have. Um, the problem with with fiat currency, with paper money, is that you can just create it out of thin air. It's simply a matter of going into a computer, punching a few numbers, you know, running some paper through a printing press. Mm-hmm. That's not value. I mean, that's <sighs> here's here's an example that an example. I think I told you about this when you were over at my apartment a few weeks ago. Um, I came home after something. Uh, my roommates and a couple other people were playing Monopoly. And I said, well, hey, can I join in? And they're like, no, we're in the middle of a game of Monopoly. It's like, no, no, I'll be the government. And so I grabbed the stack of $500 bills and put a piece on the board and just start running around paying for everything with $500 bills, buying up all the property I can, and and buying people's mortgages for much higher than the values that exist, mimicking things that are happening in our government today. And it was <laughs> hilarious because the game erupted into chaos after this because, okay, someone would land on, on boardwalk with a hotel and they only, you know, they can't afford it. So they start mortgaging their stuff and I give them, you know, two or three, $500 bills. Cause I wasn't accepting change. Cause this is not a time for change people. Um, <laughs> sorry, little, little pun there. Pun is not the right word. Anyway. Um, and so I would, I would then own all of this property that I could then immediately turn around and say, okay, landing on this costs, you know, okay, I've got four houses. Now I've got a, hotel buying them all at once and and making prices skyrocket and and the game failed like nobody could possibly win because i was sitting there throwing money everywhere so next <laughs> so if, if you want if you want a good base example of of how the economic system in our country is right now go with your, some of your friends get a game of monopoly started play you know play for an hour so a lot of the stuff's been bought up not everything but a lot of it um, and then have someone else come in and give them the stack of five hundred dollar bills and just let them play and see what happens. Oh, um, yeah. Because that and, and that's that is really what scary. Happened. It shows the absurdity of uh-huh. that sort of approach, and yet we don't see that when we look at our actual government and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting socialism essentially in this country overnight, or we're getting we're getting economic socialism. We're getting there. Yeah. Um, by the way, I want to make the distinction. Socialism is not a political system. It is an economic <laughs> system in which the government controls the means of production um, versus the, the private sector controlling the means of production. It has nothing to do with how the political system is set up. It has nothing to do with how the government is run. It simply means <laughs> government ownership of the means of production. Um, it's, it's a common misconception. Uh, it gets confused with uh, communism too often. And uh, Both people think, oh, we're becoming socialists. I would like to say both of which are bad, but right, both of which are bad, but for different economic reasons. socialism is not the same. <laughs> I I have a problem with economic socialism in the respect that it is being used right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no problem with public education, um, which is a form of socialism. It's the government controlling the means of education. Um, I don't think it's the best way of doing things, but thankfully I'm able to go to college for a relatively inexpensive amount as a result of it. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I never took part in the in the uh, non-college public education system for good reason. It it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud to have been homeschooled for my entire education. Mm. Um, and look how you to, turned out up to college. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, it's funny that way, isn't it? You know, when when you have the marketplace of ideas and you decide that uh, you know the public school system isn't the best, and you just you know you find the better educators out there and we did. That's exactly did. what we did. My parents initially, and then we went to a private co-op in Austin mm-hmm. uh, with former public school teachers and sometimes former college school teachers, and they had their own businesses of educating, and they simply met in the same place. And it was this, it felt like the, the most wonderful thing in the world because it was this free market of education. You were able to choose, okay, I'm going to learn from this person, this person, and this person, and just combine it however you'd like. And it's, it was the most wonderful thing in the world. You weren't tied down to one school and one set of teachers that was inadequate. <laughs> Stephen, you're making me drool. I know. It was, it was a very wonderful experience, and I'm only now coming to appreciate uh, just how significant it was and how important it was for me and how I turned out. Um, I really wish it could be the case with the entire education system in the United States, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if it's – if it's something that we could psychologically accept as a country right now. I think we're too ingrained in this idea that, well, school is something that you pay the government for, and it's their responsibility to provide good teachers and good education. But when it becomes up to the individual to find the best education and send their child to it, then it becomes then the responsibility gets put back on the parents rather than the government, and you have this sort of this marketplace of educational system. In a very literal sense. Yes. Uh, yeah. um, uh. I love it. And I think it's it's the most libertarian approach in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's probably not going to happen because we've, we've gotten ourselves accustomed to socialism. And really, we should be very unsurprised that our government was willing to do the, the huge bailout that it did and, and is surprised. now considering seriously the bailout of the big three American automakers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's... It's not unprecedented. We've been leading up to it for a very long time, and it's only ridiculous to us in the sense of the amount of money that is involved this mm. time. <laughs> yeah. I do want to make a shout-out to my parents, uh, who, in their infinite wisdom, let me drop out of the public school system in sixth grade, uh, which definitely did a lot of good for me. Um, so, uh, well, I've, I've actually done just about every type of schooling that I've come across. I've done homeschooling. I've been private schooled. I've been public schooled. And I love that even, even today in a socialist educational system, I have the freedom to do that. So, uh, thanks mom and dad. Well, see, I, I really have no problem with a a socialist educational system that was good. (laughs) It's just, we don't have a good socialist education system. Um, and I think it's unfair to compare the United States to any of the Scandinavian countries. I mean, we're, we're so much larger. Our GDP is so much larger, and our mm. our culture is so much different that I don't think many of the, the political and economic ideas that have worked well in Europe and Northern Europe would work here in the United States um, simply because of our size and our diversity. Yeah. Um, and it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, we have all this money, but we're also really hand tied for how to how to do things with it mm-hmm. and we end up making these these large blunders like the the bailout and the upcoming auto bailout yeah it's gonna be great i really i don't know man i i'm uh i'm a fan of america i guess <laughs> but maybe i'm a fan of the america that i thought existed and not the america that actually exists <laughs> i'm with you there it's it's a situation where the america that is that is laid out in say the constitution of the united states um, is not the America we are currently living in. Um, arguably, it's the it's the closest thing we have, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't make it better. No, and I think improvement is something that we have to focus on. Mm-hmm. And what what bothers me right now is the the top economists of the country are not looking at well, how can we use this as an opportunity to improve the fundamentals of the country? What they're doing is sticking by their guns and saying we're going to stick by the system that we've been doing all the way up to this point, And we're not going to change. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think even, uh, I think Obama's complicity with the bailout ideas shows mm-hmm. that he is not the candidate for change after all, mm-hmm. um, that his willingness to continue 
this failed economic policy is completely antithetical to what he's been saying this entire time. So I, but honestly, I'm not surprised at all. I knew it was going to happen. I knew he yeah. was going to be more of the same. And I find it quite ironic and sad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot sad. Yeah. What, what we need to do is encourage each other to question. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, the biggest points of this podcast is mm-hmm. just go out there and question the things that you take for granted. Um, if something ain't working for you, there's probably a reason why. Yeah, and you need to ask it and figure it out. And, um, you know, look at, look at competing ideas. Um, the best thing for a devout Christian to do is read The God Delusion. <laughs> the best thing for a devout atheist to do is go to a, a day in a Catholic church. I mean, yeah. you you need to understand what is out there. Um, you need to be able to look at the other side of the coin with just as much passion and objectivity as looking at the, the side of the coin with, with which you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the unwillingness for uh, most of Americans to change their minds is what's led to most of our problems. I, I would venture to say that the mutable mind is the most rational of all. The man who is willing to change his mind about an issue is the more intelligent. I'd agree with that. We shouldn't have to stick by our guns if our guns are jammed. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's a good point. And I, I, I do think it's a good thing that this podcast is about, uh, which is why I'm glad to be a part of it. Because, And this is something that, that's worth mentioning since we're talking politics and money and things is that 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 kind of is an example of this and i i hate to toot my own horn but i'm going to um back when i was in eh, middle school it was after i started homeschooling or thereabouts um i actually for a while believed in socialism as as the economic socialism um and and you know government controlled markets and things like that and over time i have come to change my mind because of evidence and things that I have found. And I once spent probably an hour arguing with my mother about why everything should be free. Um, and <laughs> I no longer believe that. But um, Did you was... argue with her how everything could be free? <laughs> we didn't even have to get to that because her arguments were good enough that yeah. the why of it was enough. Um but it's through that that open, you know, and I was I was 13, 14 years old, but that's through that open, you know, communication of my ideas and her disagreeing with me for relatively valid reasons that that led me to become the anarcho-capitalist libertarian you see before you today or listen here here before you today. <laughs> and um, I think that's a good place to wrap it up for this episode. Um, oh, 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 one one more thing. I have to, I have to give a shout out to my favorite series of films. Um just because I don't think enough people know about these, it is we're we're in the Christmas time of the year. Uh, I know we're, we we try to be secular, you know. You have Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Festivus, all that sort of stuff. But we're in the holiday season, and so I want to uh, remind everyone of my favorite series of of Christmas themed horror films. Um, I hope I hope you've heard of these before. If not, uh, it's something you should definitely look up. And of course, I'm speaking of, you know what I'm talking about, Stephen, the uh, Kilmus Tree series of films. Um, oh, yeah. It's something I always, I, I, I saw, I first saw, you know, Oh, Kilmus Tree, probably when I was, you know, six years old uh, on, you know, a highly edited cable TV version. Um, but ever since then, I've been a huge fan. Um, and I've only kind of recently rediscovered them. And I've started up a big uh, fan site called, of all things, Oh, Kilmus Tree. Uh, on Facebook, so feel free to check that out because uh, I know there's other fans out there who love the, who love these movies just as much as I do, um, and I, I want I want to share the joy that is the Kilmus Tree series, including reluctantly the uh, remake being produced by major Hollywood studios, supposedly in 2009. There, I said it. I'll go see it. Yeah, I, I saw the announcement for that. I was I was kind of I was kind of incredulous at first. I mean, like. For for a franchise that's been around that long, you know, remakes are are in right now, and I guess I it shouldn't surprise me. But I'm still the jury's out on it. I don't know if they're going to do it justice. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, personally, I'd oh, I'd say I'd be sticking to my DVD collection. Um, but someone, major Hollywood studio, um, has has yet to release the rights of the original seven or eight eight Kilmus Tree films. But uh, there's always the bootlegs, so go out and find those, uh, and have a Merry Kilmas, everybody. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Very cool. Um, thanks for listening here on Bad Philosophy. We'll be back next week for uh, a very special uh, Christmas episode, hopefully. And, uh, and we'll try to get some more panelists on next time, but I think we did pretty well, just the two of us. What do you think, Kevin? Uh, we've done worse. Yeah, we certainly have. <clears throat> episode six. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to Bad Philosophy, and we'll see you next time. a psychopath who dresses up as a Christmas tree to kill unsuspecting merrymakers. He'd also drink box of eggnog and have an eye patch for her because he lost his eye in an unfortunate tinsel accident for which he blames the world even though it's his own fault. He would also sing really horrible parodies of Christmas songs about death. I'm talking things like Santa Claus is Coming to Kill You, Jingle Death, and of course, O Kilmas Tree. Badphilosophy.com I'm fantastic no matter what operating system you're on.